one or what? The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young woman.
Thank you, Richard. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you know all things, for your eye is on all mankind. We are all accountable to you since you made and formed us. Father, would you cut off our pride, cleanse us from thinking too highly of ourselves. Empower us to rejoice greatly because King Jesus has come in humility to save and change us through his cross. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free from the waterless well of sin and addiction. How great is your goodness. How great is your beauty. Cause us to, to flourish as we reflect your goodness and your beauty in our, into our dark, dark world to draw more people to Christ. Help me in this moment, Holy Spirit, to speak your words, not mine. Through Christ we pray. Uh, amen. Uh, here we go. We're going to continue on in our current sermon series. We are going verse by verse through the book, uh, Old Testament book of Zechariah. The theme of the entire book is it gets better. It's a very hope-giving type of book. And in this book of the Bible, it, Zechariah is really a study in the art of demolishing discouragement, of saying no to spiritual lethargy, of saying rather yes to paying attention to God. It's, it's a study in, in getting back on track with God. And looking at chapter 9 that Richard just read for us, the title of today's message is simply uh, The Return of the King. The Return of the King. You might assume that I stole this title from somewhere. Like from The Lord of the Rings, the movie of the same name. You would be wrong. You would be very, very wrong. You know why? I actually got the, the title of this message from one of the Bible commentators, okay? Yeah, which I actually consult some Bible scholars and commentators so that this, you know, I don't have all these ideas. Uh, I try to consult on some of these trusted uh, guys who have done some homework. And, but anyhow, because the film shares the same name of my sermon, uh, let's talk about the actual Return of the King film. Uh, really, the story in the film, in films, aligns very closely somewhat to the story of the gospel uh, and even what Zechariah prophesies about here. So I'm going to try to, it's almost impossible to do this, but to boil down in just a, a brief amount of time the entire storyline of the three epic, each are three-hour films of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, but here goes. Life at the very beginning of the story, under the kings of old, well, life was pretty good for the race of humans. The people under these kings, they were doing well, they were flourishing until, guess who comes along? The Lord of the Rings, Sauron. All right? And he happens to possess uh, with him the one ring that is used to then dominate all the other rings, one ring to rule them all. And so he then dominates and seeks to dominate all of the races in Middle-earth. Well, what happens? Well, Sauron goes to war against everybody, and he rounds up his own troops. Incredibly, the son of the king, though, Isildur, I'm probably saying that wrong, remember Isildur at the very beginning? He manages to slay Sauron, and the forces of evil are defeated, or so they think. The problem is, Isildur, what does he do? He wears the ring, and as a result of wearing the one evil ring that rules them all, he is unable to resist the power of evil and, and resist the power of this ring that rules all the other rings. And over time, eventually, fast forward, the line of kings comes to an end. There's no king, and the forces of evil regroup, and they are waiting, waiting for the opportunity to rule over all once again. Now let's fast forward to the, the final, the third film in the series, The Return of the King film, Aragorn. All right, He is uh, in line to be the next king. And he leads the armies of men and elves and dwarves to defeat Sauron. Frodo, what does he do? Well, he manages to throw the one ring into the fires of Mordor. 
And as a result, what is returned to rule over humankind again? Aragorn. He becomes the king. He, he is a good king. He brings with him under his reign and rule a time of peace, a time of prosperity, a time of flourishing for all of Middle-earth. All is well again. Evil's been defeated because of King Aragorn and his new kingship, the return of the king. Now, Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he denied basing this storyline along the lines of the Bible. He was a, a devout Catholic Christian, uh, but there can be no denying that you know, there's elements of the biblical story and the gospel story in this Lord of the Rings. You know, in the Bible story, the greatest story, greater than the Lord of the Rings, is the Bible story, and that is the story of the gospel. And we see in the gospel an ultimate king return. A king who he restores the fortunes of God's people, he restores them from, from, uh, from when things are going terribly for them, from Satan's sin and death. His predecessor, King David, went before him, and he is now in the line of King David, and he makes things even better. He saves his people. He causes his people to flourish even more than they've ever flourished before. And this returning king defeats evil once and for all. That's what we see. So that's the nutshell version. So what we're, what we're going to see about this returning king in Zechariah chapter 9 are three things. So these are the three things we're going to try to drill down on and look at. Firstly, we're going to see that this king is a king that brings accountability. You may have heard a lot of judgment in that reading that Richard shared with us. There is judgment. There is accountability for people and nations who say no to God. Secondly, we're going to see that this returning king, he is righteous and he is returned to sort of set things right. And thirdly, we're going to see how good and beautiful this returning king is and what makes him, what makes him so good and so beautiful is that he causes his people under his reign to be saved and to flourish. And that's the nutshell sermon. Let me tell you, this returning king is, is pretty amazing, actually. Let's get to work, though. Let's first begin and look at the first section of chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and do a bit of a flyover sort of approach. There's a lot there. You may have noticed there's a lot of details there. We can't deal with everything here. As you might recall, though, from previous messages in this series, uh, things have been really rough for God's people for several centuries. Uh, for quite some time, we're going back to, you know, to the time after Solomon to the time of Zechariah. Things have been rough and dicey. Why are things rough and difficult and challenging for God's people? Well, it's, it's because they've stopped, they've tuned God out. They've stopped paying attention to God. They've stopped listening to God's prophets that he's tried to send to them to get their attention, but they're very often killing these prophets. They're not listening to them. They're not listening to God in, in, in the Bible or in Scripture. And as a result, they're, they're looking for God replacements in all the wrong places. Therefore, God, he allows these neighboring superpower nations, Assyria and Babylon, to subdue and to conquer Israel. And yet, in his kindness... In the midst of this discipline, this is not the end of God's people. No, no, no. He has big plans for them. Big, breathtaking plans for God's people. And this plan is described in chapter 9 here by God through Zechariah. And God says, and let me just paraphrase this somewhat. He's basically saying to God's people in Zechariah's day and age, he's like, I've got big problems with the nations in and around you. Big problems with those who have opposed Israel. I have big problems with Damascus and Tyre and Sidon and Ashkelon and Gaza and Philistia. Because why? Because they have overvalued 
wealth, material wealth, material possessions. They've become all about gold and silver. They have become also full of themselves, too full of themselves, full of pride. They are self-obsessed. All they think is about is themselves. And because of their greed and because of their, their pride, these nations are fueled by self-interest and they are all about giving God's people, the nation of Israel, a very hard and difficult time. They decide to oppress God's cherished possession. And he's got a problem with that. He's confronting them. And that leads us to number one in your notes. Simply unabashed greed, pride, and the oppressing of others will be disciplined by the king, whether it's these nations or whether it's us. If you ever think that the greedy things that you do, the pride-fueled things that you do, or more tragically, the abusive things that you do, if you think those things are flying under God's radar, like He can't see that stuff, uh, if you don't think God's going to bring some measure of discipline for doing those things, being filled with greed and pride and oppressing others, you would be very wrong. He sees all. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. Let me talk about a couple of examples. You are likely aware of, and I've, I've shared this before, the Me Too movement. You know about the Me Too movement? Um, it's gained a lot of steam, a lot of recognition. It may be kind of dying now, but it was a big deal over the last two years. And what the Me Too movement is really about, it's sort of this cultural reckoning, this cultural moment of, of discipline for well-known men and women, celebrities who have secretly abused and hurt others in, in subtle and overt ways. Producers and actors, comedians, we've got Louis C.K., we've got Kevin Spacey, we've got Harvey Weinstein. All of these guys are in the process or have been brought to account, and they've at the very least faced this very public backlash and, and this humiliation as these things are brought to light. <clears throat> and hopefully, the Me Too movement will bring about real positive change, that you, you can't get away with this stuff. But you see, here's the thing, here's where it gets a little more scary. It's because it's not just the Me Too movement that's been big. It's actually what is now called the hashtag. I'm not big into hashtags, but anyhow, I'll just say what it is. It's the hashtag Church Two movement. Have you heard of this? There's the Church Two movement going on, and this really disturbs me. Across North America, primarily stateside, uh, pastors, especially those of megachurches, are being called to account for abusing their leadership privileges by taking advantage of church members in various ways. Uh, for example, these guys are abusing church finances, uh, fueled by greed. Uh, authoritarian leadership styles, you know, bringing the hammer down on their church members, and they're bringing emotional, spiritual, psychological harm to their church members. And worst of all, subtle and overt sexual abuse of all sorts and kinds, all of which they're getting away with it. Why? He's the pastor. He's the pastor. He's a church leader. And because of that, we'll keep it un sweep it under the rug. Keep it secret. Don't tell anybody. Until the last couple of years, you know, stuff is coming out from under the rug. It's like God's revealing. God's disciplining. And thanks to this church to movement, these hidden sins of greed and pride and the oppression of others, they're finally being revealed. It's getting into social media. The world now knows what's really or has been really going on. Just for yourself, please don't do this right now, 
But do a Google search on recent megachurch pastors who have been fired, you know, and there's, there's multiple guys, countless church members, thousands of church members have been hurt and they've been damaged and they, they have been oppressed. So before you give up, you might be thinking, why am I here at a church? Like, <laughs> we should just give up on the church, shouldn't we? No, we should not, because this is a minority. Most churches are not run by crazy pastors or leadership teams and self-interested people. Thankfully, we're talking about a small minority here that have been caught up in this church to movement uh, right now. But my, here's my point. If we, if you, or if I think somehow these kinds of sins will remain secret or not become known by God or other people, uh, if we think God doesn't care about it, He will we'll get away with it. He will not bring me to account for these things. We are living in a dream world. Sin has a way of becoming revealed. It will be revealed. In fact, here's, here's the angle I'm trying to take on this. The most loving thing God can do is to reveal this stuff that's going on in churches or in ourselves personally, in our marriages personally, in our families. If we're living in a place of greed and, and pride and, and self-interest and if we're oppressing others in big or small ways, the best thing that our loving God and loving King can do for us is to reveal it and bring it to light for us and those that love us and to our church if needed to then lead us to own our sins, take responsibility, go to a place of repentance. I screwed up. I sinned. I was wrong. It's all me. And then we change we take our sin to the cross, receive forgiveness for it, and we move on. Save me from me. That's what we do. It's the best thing for us, for our sin to be revealed. And so, there it is. That's what God was doing with these nations. Let Him do it to any who are here today, to our church. It's tough stuff, but it's needed. It brings us to a place of health. Let's move on to the next set of verses here, namely 9 through 15, if you have it in front of you there. What happens in 9 to 15 in Zechariah 9? Well, God continues to speak to his people through Zechariah. And let me just try to paraphrase this again. He is saying to his people, it's time to rejoice. Saying, uh, people of God, greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice. Why? He says, because your king is coming to you. It is the return of the king here. And how does God say that this returning king will come into the city of Jerusalem? Well, God says he's going to come in with, with righteousness. And he's going to come with salvation for his people. And then notice this, he is coming with humility. That's the kind of king that we got here, is one of a king of humility. Now, how do we, how do we know, what's our heads up, that this returning king is going to be a humble king? It's because of what he's riding. It's because of his form of transportation that Zechariah talks about. So the question is, is this returning king, is he riding a mighty steed? Is this returning king riding a great, muscular, white war horse? Is this what he's riding into Jerusalem? The answer is no, he is not. He is riding a donkey colt. I mean, a donkey is pretty small in and of itself as an adult. So let's just imagine how big this colt was. That's what he's riding, is a baby donkey. Not exactly an impressive war machine. Especially for a king. Let's stop here for a second. So now, you, you might know where this is going. You might know what Zechariah is prophesying. But I want to actually step back and actually go back in time 
500 years before Zechariah to in and around 1000 BC to the time of King David. And King David was God's chosen king. He ruled Israel for in and around 30 years. And King David was known to be someone who loved God and God loved him. And God told him and promised to David that a future descendant of David's would become a glorious ultimate kind of king. So his direct descendant would be descendant would be this amazing king down the line. Now, before you assume that David's reign as king was super smooth, that it was wonderful, you got to know it was it was not super smooth all the way through. In fact, David's own son Absalom staged a coup attempt against his own dad and he almost succeeded. Incredibly, King David, what did he have to do? Well, he submitted that he realized this might be God's discipline. And it was. And he, he submitted to it. And King David literally had to, was forced to flee and run away from Jerusalem. Now, on what creature did David flee and run away from Jerusalem? He was riding, according to 2 Samuel chapter 16, a donkey. And later, sure enough, David's reign is restored. He learned a lot through that experience and that discipline. The coup attempt fails. Things don't go well for Absalom. Anyhow, let's fast forward now a thousand years to the time of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. All right? And what happens? Palm Sunday arrives. Palm Sunday, just a week before that original Easter Sunday. According to Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 9, John chapter 12, Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem on what? A baby donkey colt. Prophesied with exact detail 500 years before it actually happens. Only God can do that, by the way. If you think the Bible is a bunch of malarkey, it is not a bunch of malarkey. It is true. That's a big heads up. This stuff's true, man. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding this baby donkey, returning as king in the line of David. It's like Aragorn. And what you need to know is this returning king, he's not like the other kings. He is not about greed. He's not about corruption. He is not about oppressing others. No, this king is righteous. He is, he is not corrupt. He is humble. He is riding a colt. Uh, this riding of this baby donkey was a hint and a heads up of the kind of humility, humiliating death that Jesus would experience on the cross. And why would Jesus go to the cross? He did it for his people. He humbled himself on the cross to die as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. And so this donkey was a, a hint that the cross was coming. Furthermore, this king would not be a warmonger, but rather this king is a peacemonger. He will not use chariots and war machines, war horses, battle bows to rule and reign. No, rather King Jesus, who is God, he is the Prince of Peace. He will speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. And he will set his spiritual prisoners free. And that leads us to point number two in your notes. It's a long one, but here it is. Our humble and righteous king has returned. Thank goodness that he's returned to save and, and speak peace, to rule over the nations and set the prisoners free. I want to talk briefly about uh, heroes. We, in our culture, uh, have uh, really an obsession with, with heroes. Uh, we like to find either real heroes or even make-believe heroes 
we're just rather hero-obsessed. Think about this. Uh, let's talk about sports for a second. We try to find heroes in sports. And, and really, what every sport, they're looking for the next Gretzky. Gretzky was or the next Michael Jordan. Uh, these guys were just phenomenally talented and did amazing things in sports. And so we're looking for the next Gretzky, the next Jordan. So what happens? Well, then the Crosbys show up, and then the McDavid's show up, and the Pedersons, for you Canucks fans out there, show up. And then we got in baseball, the Guerreros, they come along. And when they come along, these sports heroes, we, we tie our hopes and our dreams and our passions to them and to their sporting achievements and prowess. And, and we love them and we pay great attention to them. We want to be all about these sporting heroes. In politics, you know, during election campaigns, typically, we desire to find that leader who values what we value, who believes what we believe in, this leader who inspires us and who is attractive and, and speaks well. And very often, we desire to tie our, our, our hopes and our dreams to him or her and pay all kinds of attention. We desire political heroes, do we not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in cinema, we're rather obsessed with our fictional her heroes. And I must confess, I kind of like superhero films. Okay, I do. It's, it's a weakness. Iron Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, the Avengers. The Avengers, I mean, come on. And as a result, we, you know, with these fictional superheroes, we kind of tie, deep down, we kind of tie our, our hopes and dreams vicariously to them. And... and and we kind of try to see ourselves in them and attach our hopes and dreams on them. And, and we love them. We pay attention to these, even fictional superheroes. And what's up with this obsession? What's up with the obsession with finding and following heroes? Here's my take. It's because there, there's actually something deep down inside every single one of us, inside me. We know deep down we need someone greater than ourselves. We need a superhero. We need this ultimate king, an ultimate savior, an ultimate protector and achiever and an avenger whose name is, is Jesus. We feel that deep down. We need somebody to save us from me. I mean, look at look how this ultimate returning king, Jesus, is described by Zechariah in this passage. This returning king is, and his name is Jesus, is righteous. There's no evil in him, no corruption, no sin. Only right ways and integrity and right thoughts and right words. No better leader of integrity than Jesus. Then look how humble Jesus is. He continually puts people before himself. He, he cared for the leper in his time of ministry 2,000 years ago. He cared for the cheats, the tax collectors. He cared for the corrupt. He cared for the prostitute. And he never abused his power. I mean, we're talking about an all-powerful power, person here. He never abused his power at all. For self-interest, no. Jesus chooses to experience the ultimate demotion from heaven, comes to earth, becoming the God-man. And then He dies for us. He lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins, where He was publicly shamed and humiliated and crucified for us. I mean, Jesus really redefines humility. And then look how peaceful Jesus is. Why is He described as the Prince of Peace in the Bible? Well, it's because the words of Jesus are... all. Peaceful. Jesus brought peace between God and humanity, reconciliation to humanity through his cross. Jesus is bringing an eventual end to all warfare, all hostility, all fighting, all bloodshed will be gone in the future. That's because of Jesus. 
And then lastly, what does this returning King Jesus do for us? He sets the prisoners free. Free from what? He, he sets the prisoners free from sin and from death. You know, before we met Jesus, before we became a Christian, all of us were spiritually trapped in something like a waterless well. If you know the story of Joseph, he was thrown into a waterless well by his brothers. He couldn't get out. In like manner, we could not get out of this waterless spiritual well that we were in. We were stuck in sin, stuck in addiction. We can't, and we could not change ourselves. We certainly couldn't save ourselves. But by the Lord's grace and His love and His mercy for us, what does our King do? He reaches down and He pulls us out of this waterless well. And He sets the prisoners free. He saves us from ourselves, saves us from the curse and the consequences of our sins, and He rescues us forever. It's permanent rescue. And I'm telling you, this is the superhero. This is the Savior. This is the King that you need, that I need. This is the one deep down we know intrinsically. This is the one we must trust and and need. And so not yet Christian. I don't know where you're at. Not yet Christian. Don't delay. Come to Jesus. The opportunity is today. Salvation is today. Here it is. Repent of your sins. Trust in the Gospel. And seek and pursue baptism. I want to talk to you, Christian. I, I hope that when you see Jesus for who He is, you know, that's what we do. We gather here every Sunday. And we get, get back and we look at what the Bible says about God. And a big response for us, if we just look at the Scripture and what does Scripture say about God, our response and key response is worship. So worship God in this moment. Worship God for sending King Jesus as our righteous, humble, peace-giving, prisoner-freeing ruler who will one day, faith becomes sight in heaven, new heavens, new earth. He's going to rule over all the nations from sea to sea with love, with peace, with protection. And so let us today worship Him. Let us be renewed in our love and our desire for Him. We're going to finish things off now. In transition, I want us to look at the final two verses, verses 16 and 17. And what we see in verses in 16 and 17 uh, are breathtaking, A, but B, this is that partial and total fulfillment prophecy thing I was talking about many Sundays in a row. Okay, and I'll, I'll try to recap it here. There's an immediate prophecy that happens in the coming decades, if not a couple centuries, and there's a later uh, fulfillment to the prophecy that happens many, many centuries later. And so the, the partial fulfillment of this prophecy is that in Zechariah's day and in the decades and centuries after Zechariah, God indeed did save what remained of the nation of Israel. He gathered them back together, back to the homeland. And during this period of time, they prospered. They did well during this time of peace. The crops did well. The wine flowed. The people flourished. And the response to God saving His people and then causing them to flourish in this way, well, their response was gratitude. Thank you, God. It was, how great you are, God. And they were saying stuff like, how great is His goodness? How great is His beauty? In other words, the people, they're receiving these the promises from God, And they're basically saying, man, we are so fortunate. We've got it so good. Look how good we've got it. Look at how well we're doing. All because of God's goodness. All because of God's beautiful character and His beautiful plans for us. You see, So that was the the near-term fulfillment of the prophecy. But you see, there's also a longer-term, a total fulfillment of this prophecy 
It applies to us as well. It applies primarily to the end of time. Human history at the end. Uh, new heavens, new earth, and then the lead up to it. You see, through Jesus, God will save us, His church. We are the flock of His people. We belong to Him. And by His grace, we are like, imagine this, we are like jewels on the crown of King Jesus. Why? It's because we are reflecting His beautiful character and His holiness. We are flourishing. We are living changed lives, healthy lives. And when we live changed and healthy and holy lives, we're reflecting, we're like jewels on His crown. We're reflecting His beauty to the dark world in and around us. And so are you getting a bit of a sense of how great His goodness is to us? Like, we deserve none of this. Look how good He is to us. How blessed, how fortunate we are that we get to be jewels on His crown. And that leads us to our final point, number three. In your notes, simply, our King's goodness and beauty is so great that He saves the flock of His people and then He makes them like His crown jewels. Tammy and I watch some Netflix together. And one show that we're watching on Netflix currently just came out, I think about a week or more ago, is a, a series called The Crown. Okay, And this Crown TV series, it's a bit of a biopic of the life of Queen Elizabeth and, and her family. And some of you may be watching this right now. Maybe not now. Don't watch this now on your phone if you can help it. Anyhow, there's a scene in one of these episodes early on uh, the queen's mother-in-law. So she's got a mother-in-law. She lived in Greece, was a, was a nun. Um, and she's quite elderly in this episode. And things, times are tough at the convent or wherever she happens to serve. And so she happens to have in her possession some sort of, of glistening, beautiful, massive jewel. Like this massive jewel. Didn't quite look like that, but a bit, maybe a big version of that. And she's trying to sell it to make funds or make money for whatever... Um, convent or uh, orphanage that she happens to work in and she shows this jewel off to this potential buyer and this jewel is it's, it's just glistening it's just just filled with with light and, and beauty and it's just shining it's just it's just priceless really how can you put a, a price tag on something like that and really if you think about it the sheer and the real the real crown jewels that are actually in some sort of room somewhere uh, that are possessed by Queen Elizabeth and the British royal family. There's a lot of crown jewels. And here's a picture. Uh, the next picture, if we can show it, kind of shows off even more of these jewels. And these are real, beautiful, glistening. Just You can't even put a dollar figure on how much all of that stuff is and how valuable they are. Just invaluable. But they're beautiful. They're, they're glistening. They're massive. And it's just jaw-dropping. And here's my point. So are the people of God to be like jewels in the crown of Jesus. We are valuable to Him, so valuable that He laid down His life for us. So if you don't think you have value, you are greatly mistaken. We are valuable to Him. We become awe-inspiring as we reflect the, the glistening and the beautiful nature and character of God into our dark world. And what an honor that God would use us in this way to, to shine His light out. What a privilege. You know, we've all we've been pieces of work in our past history. We've sinned against God, and yet He chooses 
to save us and rescue us and then make us like His crown jewels to then reflect His character into our dark world. What an honor. What a privilege. You see, our returning King, you know what He's done? He saved us from like that waterless well, that pit of sin and death. He has then taken away our sins. He's cleansed us through and through. And then He makes us this beautiful new creation. He's given us His sanctifying empowering Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And then His own Spirit molds and shapes our character and our inner life. And He molds and shapes and changes us into the character of Jesus so that we reflect His character into our world. We are the crown jewels. We are His crown jewels. And so, Mercy Hill Church, let us desire to reflect God in us this week. Show off His character in your workplace this week. Show off His character in your marriage this week. Show off His character in your parenting this week. Show off your, His character to your fellow hockey parents or whatever sports parents that you have connections with. Show off His glory to them so that they see Jesus in you and they say, what do you got? you got something that, I, that is attractive. you got something that is eternal. You've got something that is giving you life. And it's actually changing you. I want what you have. And you say, yes, here's Jesus. He is the returning King who has come with integrity, with humility, who has come to save us and then to change us. Let us do that. That is our mission in a nutshell. Uh, Let's bring it to a close. Would you pray with me? What an honor that it is that you've commissioned us to shine out your light into our dark world, to shine out your beauty into our dark world as your crown jewels. We don't deserve any of this, and yet you give it to us because of your generosity, because of your love for us, because of your mercy, and we love you for it. Lord, we come to you now to remember and celebrate the Lord's uh, Supper and to remember the cross behind it and the resurrection behind it. Uh, We desire to examine ourselves in light of the Gospel Show us things in our hearts that you want us to repent of and and confess to you to receive grace and mercy in this moment. That we would take our sins to the cross and be made new again by you. Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet taken the step of faith towards you, Jesus, I pray that they would have the courage to take that next step of repentance, of believing and trusting in the gospel and of baptism. And they would have a conversation with me or with somebody, other Christian here today, and, and not delay on that. Lord, we don't know when your return is coming, but we know that it could come at any moment's notice. And I pray that we would all live in the light of that fact that you could come at any moment now. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.